Thank you, Father, for your grace today that sustains us. Thank you for that grace that saved us and that same grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasure and to live self-controlled and upright lives, even in this present dark age. Father, strengthen us through your word at this time, would you? Thank you for the joy and the peace that it gives us to gather with our church family and to sing hymns together and, and to jointly worship you by the giving of our offerings. And now, Lord, as we sit still and quiet before you, as we do so rarely, would you just help us to have ears to hear, help us to have tender hearts, help us to, Lord, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, to make application of your word that we would be strengthened in our walk, that we would accomplish your purposes this week, that you would refresh us and renew us in our walk with Jesus this first day of a new week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. You can picture it, can't you? You're sitting in the auditorium, it's decorated beautifully. The music changes. The pastor and the groomsmen walk in. The groom is strategically located where he can look up the aisle. The music shifts again. The doors open. The bride's mother stands. Everyone else stands. And here comes the bride. They come down the aisle. And what a moment it is. Unlike any other moment in our lives, really. These two who are so in love and so ready to commit to one another, uh, they will say things like this. They will say, therefore, realizing the seriousness of the step you are about to take, I'll say this to them. Do you, you groom, will you have this woman to be your wife, to love her, to comfort her, to honor and respect her? To keep her in sickness and in health, and to give her your name and forsaking all others, to cleave to her as long as you both shall live. And he will say, I will. She will say, I will. And he'll say, I will. <laughs> I'll say something like this I'll say, Bride, will you have this man to be your husband? To love him and to honor and respect him in sickness and in health and in taking his name to forsake all others and to cleave to him so long as you both shall live. And she will say, I will. And we will move on the platform and they will take one another's hands and, and they will say something like this. I groom, take thee bride to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. What a moment, huh? And they really believe it. 
They really mean it. They're going to do that. And then, ten sad years later, they sit in my office across from me in my desk. And they look at each other with daggers in their eyes. And they want the other person, truth be known, deep in their gut to just die and leave them alone. And they wish somehow something really bad would happen to that person because they deserve it. And two people who are so committed and so in love and they knew everything was going to be so good, the wheels have come off and they're upside down in the ditch. How does that happen? I want you to catch the spirit of that attitude and every married couple here can relate to the the emotional swings of a long-term relationship and what it means to deny self and to die to self and, and to live for Jesus and to live for one another. But I want, you to, I want you to take that emotion, that intention, that public kind of vow, and I want you to bring it over and bridge it into our walk with Jesus. And this, we begin the next couple of weeks of heading to the cross, and praise God, we don't stop in the cemetery. We're going to move right on through the cemetery and go to Sunday morning and celebrate that great keystone doctrine of the Christian faith, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, as we take the next three Sundays and just focus on the Passion Week and focus on the the final um, ministry moments of our Lord Jesus, I want you to think about your commitment to Christ, and I want you to think about that through the eyes of Peter, who in much the same way of a well-intentioned groomed, looked at his Lord Jesus and said, I will always love you. And then, how does it happen? Denied his Lord Jesus publicly. Now I want us to be challenged in our thinking and and be reminded of how easy it is to fall. I'm not talking about losing our salvation. I believe the Bible clearly communicates that when you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and you've come to the cross and you recognize your sinfulness and the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin and, and you know that Jesus Christ went to the cross as your substitute and you've put your faith and trust in Christ alone and by faith you've received that to be true for you that you've been, you've been made a new creation in Christ and you are seated now in the heavenlies in Christ and you are now a trophy of His grace. We're capable of falling, aren't we? We're capable of, on the one hand, having the best of intentions of commitment and then living as though there is no Christ in our life at all. We're going to do this this morning by reminding ourselves of a variety of the events that took place as Christ went to the cross We're going to look in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to look at a number of different passages of Scripture and and to help us stay on track. We're basically going to stay in Mark's Gospel. You can begin by turning to Mark chapter 5, and even as you turn, let me remind you of a couple of things. Um, One is that Mark's Gospel, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels, 
Of the three, Matthew, Mark, and John were disciples of Jesus. Luke comes onto the scene a little bit later. He's a curious man. He's a physician. He's a historian. And Luke does research, and he presents an orderly researched account of the life of Jesus to a friend of his named Theophilus. And that's why we have the Gospel Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in God's sovereign plan of bringing the scriptures to us so that we can know Christ, um, Luke, Luke kind of was the guy that did a lot of detail work. But Matthew and Mark and John, they were right with Jesus and they gave record of their eyewitness accounts. And of Matthew, Mark and John, Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. You might even think of it sort of as a Reader's Digest condensed version. It's a little bit shorter. He, he kind of hits the high points of Christ's ministry, kind of gets right to the point. He does not have an account of the birth of Christ at all. He does give an account of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. He gives some interesting accounts of his ministries. And in the Gospels, something else that's very interesting, as we enter this uh, week, Palm Sunday coming next week, Passion Week we might call it, as we look at the calendar, we have Good Friday, we will be here to have communion, to reflect upon that most meaningful event of Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. And then Sunday morning as we gather with great joy with Christians all around the world and celebrate that great affirming moment of the resurrection when death could not hold him in the grave any longer and the scriptures were fulfilled. When you read the Gospels, one of the things that's interesting is that it's an account of of our Lord's public ministry which lasted about three years. And in the Gospels... um, A good bit of material is given to those three years, but significant amount of material is given to this final week of our Lord's ministry, about a week. For example, in Mark's gospel, as we look through it, you'll notice that there's 16 chapters in in the gospel of Mark, and the first 10 chapters are given to all but about a week of the three years of ministry. So for three years, he gives 10 chapters review to it, and then there's six more chapters, and he's going to give the final week six chapters. So there's so much that happened. So much is recorded of our Lord's teaching in that final week. And it's very interesting. And the other Gospels are similar in that the amount of volume of material given to this last week. So it's a good time for you devotionally now as you go home in this week and take your lunch break or whatever to take your Gospels and to review these accounts. And if you just don't really know where to turn, just head towards the back of the Gospels and and look at the chapter headings or the titles of the paragraph headings in your Bible, and you'll be able to figure out pretty quickly about that last week of our Lord's ministry. And I would encourage you to spend some time in the next week or so just refreshing, reminding yourself, and read the parallel accounts of the Gospels. And I think you'll find that very helpful. It'll help you as you worship this Easter season. Well, it's very interesting that in the Gospel accounts that... um, as the, the record is given, that in that last week, of all the disciples who followed Jesus, that if there's extra commentary about anyone, it is about the apostle or the disciple, Peter. He's an interesting guy. He's a strong character. He's a bold character. And maybe the reason that there's so much written about Peter, uh, apart from our Lord Jesus, above all the other disciples, is that Peter, more than any other disciple, spoke out. He was a colorful, a colorful personality. He was, as I said, a strong personality. And he often spoke 
what he was thinking. And so we know a lot about what Peter felt and what he thought. And I want us to focus today on Peter in this last week particularly. And I want you to see that if there was anybody who shouldn't ever have fallen spiritually, if there is anybody who should have maintained a a level of loyalty and commitment to their Lord Jesus, it was Peter. He had an incredibly strong foundation for spiritual success. And in fact, I want to divide our message kind of in two parts. And the first part that we're going to look at as we thumb through Mark's gospel is we're going to call it Peter's resume for spiritual success. Peter's resume for spiritual success. We're just going to look at four different aspects of Peter and how you can see from that that he should have never, ever denied his Lord. Of course, through all of this, we want to see ourselves, we want to remind ourselves of how capable we are of telling our Lord Jesus that we love Him and we would never deny Him. And yet, there's those days when we fail and when we fall. What causes that? And that's the second part of our message as we look at Peter and we want to look and see Peter's formula for spiritual disaster. Peter's formula for spiritual disaster. Well, let's take our Bibles and let's, um, let's begin in chapter 5. And I want you to see in Peter's resume for spiritual success and this strong spiritual foundation and relationship that he had with our Lord Jesus Christ, that it begins with, number one, that he had, he had the privilege of close proximity to Jesus. He had the great privilege of living and serving and ministering in very close proximity to Jesus. When you read the Gospels in chapter 5, for example, is coming uh, right after chapter 4. That's pretty profound. Write that in your notes. Um, But coming out of chapter 4, you'll notice that that's where Jesus calmed the storm. Guess who was right there with Jesus when Jesus spoke and calmed the storm? Disciples were afraid. Jesus asleep in the boat. Jesus awakens. It's dark. They think they're going to die. And Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves. And who's right there about five and a half feet away watching? Peter. Peter is. I want you to see that In all of these events, Peter's right there watching him, making the blind see, making the lame to walk, taking a little boy's lunch of loaves and fishes and feeding the multitudes. Who's right there just a few feet away? Peter. He was in close proximity in all of this public ministry of our Lord. But I also want you to see that that Peter, by our Lord's own design of influence, is of the twelve given permission on a regular basis to be even closer than all the other twelve along with the three. Check chapter 5 out and let's look at verse 37. This is a great moment. It wasn't too long ago we looked at this from our platform here. And this is when, remember, Jesus had just cast the demons out of the crazy man at Gadaria. And then he's he's interrupted by this... um, This important official named Jairus, whose daughter is very sick and is going to die. Remember that story? And so he heads off on his way is when the woman with the issue of blood touches his garment and is healed of her issue of blood. Who's right there walking with you? Peter is. And so they're heading to Jairus' house where word has come to this important religious official in Israel that his young daughter, 12 years old, is going to die. Jesus goes there. They get there. And 
she's already died and Jesus kicks everybody out of the house. And now look at verse, um, verse 37 of chapter 5. And he allowed, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except, what's the next word? Except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I want you to make note of that in your Bible. And I want you to notice as we read through Mark and the other Gospels as well as you read through them, you will notice on a regular basis that of the twelve, there were three that were singled out. And they were Peter, James, and John. I think it's just a pattern in our Lord's ministry. He... He knew to minister to 12. It was part of his strategy that when he went to heaven, these 12, Judas being replaced, would go out and preach the gospel. The churches would be planted. That was his strategy, his plan. Of the 12, he had three that he brought in close to himself. We don't know exactly why, other than that's not a bad leadership strategy. There's the 12 that he ministered to, that he regularly poured himself into. He lived with them for three years. He traveled with them. He demonstrated his power to them. He taught them. And then you'll notice on these certain occasions, he backs out the eight, nine. He backs out the nine and he brings in the three. And it's always Peter, James, and John. You'll also notice that when the disciples are listed and when the three are listed, whose name comes first? Almost always, it'll be Peter and the disciples. Peter, James, and John. This guy had the great privilege of being in close proximity to Jesus. In this chapter 5, verse 37 account, he kicks everybody out of the house. He brings Peter, James, and John in with him. He wants them to have a special inside look. He takes the little girl by her hand, raises her off her deathbed, reintroduces her to her family, tells them to give her something to eat. And who's right there? Peter. Peter. Not a bad point for your resume, huh? I ministered and served really close to Jesus. And of the twelve, there were three of us. And of the three, my name comes first. I was always right there. Secondly, I want you to see backing up to chapter 3 now, earlier in the book even, at the very time when Jesus appointed them to ministry, You'll recall that Peter was a fisherman who dropped his nets to follow Jesus. I want you to see number two. The second point that we're going to make note of for Peter's resume is that he preached and ministered with a special authority given by Jesus. Peter was personally given special authority by Jesus to preach and to do signs and wonders. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And, verse 15, to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, and whose name comes first? Simon, to whom he, Jesus, gave the name Peter. And then he goes on to list the names. Listen, what a privilege. What a privilege to have this closeness, this proximity to Christ. 
But how incredible it is to be chosen as the twelve, and Jesus appoints him as one of his disciples, whom Jesus called an apostle. And by the way, that is a, a, a point to note that one of the requirements to be an apostle is that you had firsthand personal ministry with Jesus, eyewitness, you were there and ministered with him as an apostle. Some people claim to have the role of an apostle today and they don't. Don't be deceived by that. An apostle is somebody who ministered firsthand with Jesus when he was on earth. And other passages of scripture support this, that a requirement to be an apostle is that you were there and were an eyewitness account. What a privilege of those. Jesus calls 12, and there's Peter. And then he gave, Jesus personally gave his disciples a special authority over the demonic world. And you'll recall in your New Testament that there was much demonic activity in the, in the New Testament in this part of the world at that time. In fact, remember there, were, there was like a man with a little boy whose boy used to go into fits and foam at the mouth and jump into the water and try and drown himself or he would try to jump in the fire and burn himself and it was attributed to demons. The crazy man at Gadaria that was lived in the tombs that we talked about not long ago. He had legions of demons in him. And Jesus gave Peter and his disciples a special authority to preach powerfully and to have rule over demons so that they could cast out demons, which meant even healing people from diseases that were demonically induced. Not a bad point to have in your resume. I've healed people. I've commanded demons to flee and they flee. I was chosen by Jesus to be the inner circle and he gave me special power. You can see Peter's authority in following the resurrection and following his restoration with, Lord, with his Lord Jesus after his failure that we're going to look at today. You can see that in the book of Acts, when they begin the church planting movement and the gospel begins to spread around the world, that Peter and the apostles had tremendous authority and power in that first generational church. Given to them right here by Jesus for a special season of ministry. Not a bad point. Chapter 8 now in Mark's gospel. Take a look at chapter 8. Not only did he have the privilege of close proximity to Jesus... Not only did he preach and minister with a special authority given by Jesus, but number three, he proclaimed confidently the very identity of Jesus. Who did? Peter did. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 29. Chapter 8, verse 29. Let's pick it up with verse 27. Jesus is with his disciples and they um, went on to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, they're talking, and Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they said to him, Well, some people say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And you can kind of see Jesus pausing for a minute, and maybe they even stopped. And Jesus turns to face them instead of just walking along with them, maybe. And he says, but I want to know who do you say I am and who speaks up. Look at. But who do you say that I am? Peter right away answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one we've been waiting for. 
Interesting, isn't it? Somebody speaks up. It's Peter. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the one sent from God and you are the Christ. He confidently spoke out, proclaiming the identity of Jesus. I know Jesus. I know who he is. He's the promised son of God. Have you ever spoken those words? I know Jesus. I know who he is. I will testify to the fact who he is. He's Christ. He's the son of God. The fourth thing that we want to note for his resume, and there's no doubt many others that could be listed. We'll just notate four is that he was provided. Peter was provided with what is really an incredible and amazing moment. What I'm calling a snapshot of the very deity of Jesus. Peter was provided with a snapshot moment of the very deity of Jesus. This is chapter 9, beginning with verse 2. We know this story as Jesus going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You've heard that, right? The Mount of Transfiguration. This is kind of a, a, a weird, kind of one of these stories. It's just odd. It's just different. And notice what happens. Don't miss it. Verse 2, who does Jesus take with him to go farther up on the mountain? After six days, Jesus took with him, there he is, Peter, James, and John. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So the others were left behind. And here's this Peter in close proximity to his Lord, invited to this special place, invited to experience a most special moment. And it just says... And he was transfigured before them. What that means is that his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. The idea in the Greek there is that there was was no laundry, no laundress, no launderer who could make them that white. You couldn't get the whites that white. I don't know exactly what this looked like. I just know that there's Jesus... And all of a sudden, he just kind of like begins to glow. Notice what else happens. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There's Jesus, and then Peter, James, and John are evidently off on the side, maybe sitting on a rock or something. Jesus begins to glow. The next thing you know, in this glowing aura is Elijah. They recognize him to be Elijah. I don't know how. They recognize him to be Moses. These guys are all lit up. There's like this Shekinah glory. It's kind of a moment where, whoa, what's going on here? And notice good old Peter. Peter just can't be quiet. You would think he would just like fall on his face or something. But Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. You know, Peter, he doesn't know what to do. You're going to see that in a moment. He didn't know what to do. So what does Peter do when he doesn't know what to do? He starts to talk. That's what he does. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, you would think, you would think if Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to Jesus and you're sitting right here on a rock, listen. I got a clue. You ever get a chance to hear Jesus, Moses, and Elijah carry on a conversation? Shut up and listen. All right? Now, Peter. Oh, Lord, Lord, it's good that we're here. It's a good thing. Good decision to bring us along. 
I don't know what he's thinking. I know he's scared to death. It's going to tell us that. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And, you know, I was thinking, I don't know what in the world is he thinking. We're just going to camp out here. But somebody reminded me on the way out of the early service. It's good that we have the early service so you can get the real stuff. Um, they were reminding me, and I thought I hadn't had in, in you know, this touch, touch and go through Mark. This is still Old Testament if you think about it. This is pre-resurrection. And so what did, what did they do? Where God was, they tabernacled. Right? Where God came, you built a place and you visited God there. And, and so I take it that, that that's probably part of what's going on. This is the Shekinah glory. This is the presence of God. Look at the glow. Look at the light. Elijah, Moses, let's just build three tabernacles and let's just camp out here for a while. Let's, let's just be here. And that's probably good thinking. He said this though, verse 6, for, listen, this is why he said it. Because he didn't know what to say. Isn't that funny? For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I guess so. I guess so. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning Jesus, who they were questioning, what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. I take it that Jesus is referring to himself and that he is, in a sense, uh, um, uh, the spirit of Elijah in him. The, in our eschatological studies, as we study our Bibles on prophecy future and things that are yet unfulfilled, we know from the book of Revelation that there will be two mighty prophets that will minister and many people around the world will be saved. And they will ultimately be killed in front of the multitudes right in the streets. Many people believe that will be Elijah. As well, that Elijah has a role. You remember that Elijah was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. He never evidently died and was buried. The Bible tells us he was translated right up into the presence of God. It's kind of weird. I told you it was kind of... It's what it is, isn't it? Who's right there watching in close proximity? Who's right there running at the mouth because he doesn't know what to say, so he talks? Who's terrified? Who gets to hear the voice with his own ears? This is my son. It's probably the second time Peter's heard that. He heard it at his baptism. He was provided a snapshot moment of the very deity of Christ. And do you ever think like this? I do. So I think you probably do. Do you ever think, if I could just be with Jesus for real. If he could just be here and I could... You know, shake his hand. I could eat supper with him. If Jesus could just come in, then I wouldn't waver in my faith. Then I would really be strong. 
You think, if Jesus were just here, then maybe my papa would be made better. If Jesus was here, maybe my little child would be better. If Jesus would just come in here, he could tell my husband how to love me. Peter's resume was filled with all of this. He ministered in close proximity, the privilege of close proximity to Christ. He preached and ministered with special authority given to him by Christ. He proclaimed confidently with his own mouth the identity of Christ. You are the Christ. He was provided with this amazing snapshot of the deity of Christ. It is indeed, wouldn't you agree with me, a remarkable spiritual resume? Then how did it happen? How is it that somebody could say with such confidence in front of so many people, I love you. I am with you. How is it that Peter falls? And so let's look in chapter 14 how somebody so grounded, somebody who built their their life with Jesus on such a, a great foundation that they could teeter and fall so easily. Part two of our message, Peter's formula for spiritual disaster, it begins in chapter 14, Verse 26, and we find number one in our formula that he was talking when he should have been listening. He was talking, imagine that, when he should have been listening. We know here that um, if you flip the page, if you have to, or look at verse 1 of chapter 14, that we are now on the chronological timeline of being two days before Passover. All right? So this is... Two days before he will be betrayed by Judas, we, we uh, move on in chapter 14 of Mark and we see that wonderful story that Pastor Everett used last week from John's account in chapter 12 um, where he was anointed by Mary with the um, beautiful perfume and the, wiped, her hair with, wiped his feet with her hair and so forth, criticized by Judas. Judas is notated to betray Jesus. Jesus goes to the upper room. They've located it. He appoints them. They go set it up. They've had their Passover feast and dinner. During that time is when Judas is identified as the one who will betray him. And then at that moment, right after Jesus had partaken of the bread and the wine with them at the upper room, in the upper room at the Last Supper, they didn't know it was the Last Supper. We know it's the Last Supper because we're reading the story. They're living the story. We find ourselves at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, okay, so Jesus has broken the bread. They've drank from the cup and they sang a hymn. And then Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look at verse 29. Immediately, you could almost write in the words, immediately before Jesus was done talking, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, when Jesus said truly, you ought to listen. When Jesus says anything, you ought to listen. But when Jesus said truly, it's like, you better pay attention, young man. Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me Three times. Don't you think Peter should have shut up right there and said, Lord, would you please expand upon this and help me get through this? 
Our Lord looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want to tell you something. All of you guys are going to fall away from me because the scripture said they're going to strike the shepherd. The sheep are going to scatter. Peter, he's not thinking. He engages his mouth and he says, Lord, I don't care what the rest of them do. You can count on me. Jesus says, Peter, and maybe Jesus even pointed at him. Jesus Truly, Peter, I want to tell you something. Before the night is over and you hear the the rooster crow twice even, three times you're going to deny me. Peter goes on. He can't shut up. Verse 31. But he said, look at this. He said ESV emphatically. He said emphatically, Lord, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Luke says, In his account, in chapter 22, verse 33, it says that Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. When Luke did the research and he went around and interviewed everybody who was there, he said, what uh, what did Peter say then at this moment? And Jesus said you were going to all be scattered and deny him. And Peter said he wouldn't, right? Peter, oh yeah, that's what Peter said. I remember that Peter said, Lord, I'll go to prison for you. I'll even die for you. Mark says, Peter said, I must, I will die with you and I will not deny you. And notice how it closes the, sen- the next sentence says, and they all said the same, not to be outdone by Peter. They all said, yes, Lord, that's me too. We'll die for you. We'll die for you. But Peter was emphatic. Talk is easy, isn't it? Talk is cheap. Peter was overly confident. He was naive about the weakness of his own flesh. He did not have ears to hear what Jesus was saying. He was not humbled by Jesus' prophetic words. You would think that he would have been quiet. He would have grabbed the Lord by the hand and said, Please, you help me understand what's happening here and show me how to get through this. No, Lord. That's us, isn't it? I'll live for Jesus. All you young people want to live for Jesus, stand up, stand up. It's easy to proclaim Christ with our words, isn't it? It's easy to say, I'll live for Jesus. I'll go to prison for Jesus. I'll die for Jesus. Peter's formula for spiritual disaster is well known to most of us. And the first point of it is that he was talking when he should have been listening. And the second point, as we move on at verse 32, is that he was sleeping when he should have been praying. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. And they went to a place, verse 32, called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now notice it happens once again. Proximity. And he took with him Peter and James and John And he, Jesus, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And then going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he gets up, and it says he came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, he speaks to Peter. I wonder why he spoke to Peter. There's James and John sound asleep too. I think the reason he speaks directly to Peter's face is because Peter spoke the loudest. I'll never deny you. You can count on me. And he can't even count on him to pray with him as a prayer partner for one hour when he needs it. What a moment. Our Lord, 
sets his disciples down, calls out his three, Peter, James, and John, takes them up farther onto the mount. There's a garden area there. He pauses and they sit down. He moves off to be by himself. Praying by himself was a practice that Jesus did. We should do that. Pray privately. He gets down. It's not a picture where his elbows are neatly placed on a rock in his hand and he's looking up. He's on his face with his hands, no doubt, clawing the soil. He's in agony in his humanity. Our Lord in his humanity is overwhelmed with the reality of what's about to take place. And he even says to his heavenly father, Father, you can do anything. Why don't we change the plan? Let's have a little meeting and you can change the plan. It's not too late. But because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, and because the Son is subservient to the Father, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. He always prayed according to God's will, didn't he? He prayed specifically. He prayed passionately. He prayed directly as though it was his Papa Father, Abba Father. He was not afraid to talk directly to God in agony, but according to God's will. Evidently, an hour went by. He gets up to go check on his prayer partners, and they're sound asleep. Simon, are you asleep? Uh, it didn't get recorded, but you can see Simon, right? Oh, no, Lord, I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not asleep. Simon, could you not watch one hour? I have to tell you, there's not a person in this room that can be critical of Peter at this point, I don't think. I remember when I was a kid, my dad and my uncle Harold was planning a church up in South Dakota. My dad would go up and visit him from our northern Illinois church. And you know what they would do up there in those early days of the church planting? They would have all-night prayer meetings. I have to tell you, I think at the time it sounded like a dumb idea, and I pretty much do now. An all-night prayer meeting? you got to really care about something to stay up all night, don't you? Like rook with your friends. Like catfishing with a lantern down by the river. Now we'll stay up all night. But to get on our knees in the living room and pray for God to save this community, to pray for God to meet our needs, to pray for God to open the minds of the lost and save them from eternal life in hell, I don't think I can stay up for an hour. We're amazing, aren't we? Peter was just like us. We're just like Peter. And you can say, if I was with Jesus, I wouldn't have let him down. You better watch your mouth because you're just like Peter in front of everybody. I'll never let you down, Lord. You can count on me. And instead of praying, he was sleeping. And I'm afraid that's the church today. We're going to wake up. And we should be praying. We're sleeping. It's a, it's a formula. It's part of the, part of the dynamic for breakdown. He was talking when he should have been listening. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. Notice as we move on quickly that he was leading when he should have been following. He was leading when he should have been following. Verse 47. We'll back up a little bit. The betrayal. So they leave the garden three times. Three times Jesus goes, look at verse 40, let's back up there quickly. He went, 39, Jesus went again and he went away and prayed, saying the same words repeatedly. Jesus prayed repeatedly. 
And again he came and found them, verse 40, sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They couldn't even make an excuse. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came up, he went to him at once and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Skunk. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the parallel accounts, this is our buddy, say his name, Peter. No, Lord, not tonight, not on my watch. I'll stand with you, flailing around his sword. The high priest guy, servant ducks, wax. The sword bangs off the side of his skull, shears off his ear. The ear goes flying over into the weeds. We know from the parallel accounts, Jesus goes over, picks it up, brushes it off, sticks it back on the guy's head. you got to be kidding me. Those guys still stayed and took Jesus away. You think Jesus didn't give himself over? I think. I see that. I'm out of there. You would think that Peter would know it's not the time for his leadership. It's the time for followership. Three times. Let me show you where it happens. It's 8, 9, and 10 of Gospel of Mark. Look in chapter 8, verse 31. You will notice it's, if you just think of 8, 30, 9, 30, and 10, 30. It's really 31 and 32. But think 8, 30, 9, 30, 10, 30. In three different places in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to look right at his disciples and tell them, I have to go to Jerusalem to die, but I'm going to rise again three days later. He tells them right to their face. The first of these three is 8.30. Look what it says. This is where we already read when Peter looks at Jesus and says, in answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Peter doesn't say Elijah or Moses or a great prophet. He says, you are the Christ. We pick it up right there then. Peter said, answered him, you are the Christ. Now verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Then verse 31, and he began to teach them, Jesus did, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I take it that Jesus opened a scroll, taught from Jeremiah, taught from Isaiah, taught from the prophets. He showed them and he taught them. It says that he began to teach them. And he said this plainly, verse 32, he said this plainly, I am going to go die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again the third day, and then we're going to get together later on. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is incredible. Uh, Lord, could we talk a minute? Lord, you don't understand. I don't like your plan. Lord, you don't understand. Lord, this is not a good plan. Will you please stop teaching this stuff? Look what happens. Look what that's about what he does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciple, Jesus, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's going to happen. And you just follow me to the cross. You don't lead me to the cross, Peter. In fact, you get me get behind me because you are Satan's mouthpiece to suggest that there could be any other plan. You look at 930, you look at 1030, he does the same thing. He teaches them, he tells them, and then we're up on the mount and Peter starts flailing his sword. And instead of following Jesus and surrendering to God's plan, he's leading his own way. Because he doesn't like it. Finally, and we have to wrap up. Jesus then is taken before the council. We come to this just most emotional and incredibly serious moment in the life of Peter. Verse 66. 1466. In the fourth part of the formula, the fourth dynamic of the formula for Peter's spiritual disaster. First, he was talking when he should have been listening. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. Secondly, he was trying to lead when he should have been following. And fourthly, I want you to see that he was lying when he should have been dying. He was lying when he should have been dying. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Your speech, your accent gives you away. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Can you imagine that moment? Parallel account says that he looked down an aisle, down a corridor, and that his eyes met the eyes of our Lord Jesus. He wept. This is the guy that just a few hours ago was swinging his sword and saying, Lord, all those guys, they'll ditch you, but you can count on me. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. And, and I don't think it's a mistake that in the sovereign oversight of God and the orchestrated events of our lives, that a 12-year-old girl looks up and says, you're a Jesus follower, aren't you? And big, strong Peter can't even tell a 12-year-old girl that he's a follower of Jesus. He's afraid to die. He's afraid to be embarrassed for the name of Jesus. He's afraid to suffer shame for the name of his Lord Christ. And the girl goes over and whispers to the others and says, that's him. And they say, you're him. And he said, no, no, no. Don't know what you're talking about. And finally they say again, yes, yes, it's you. And then he says, I swear by the gods. I swear on my mama's grave. I don't know who you're talking about. Peter, shame on you. We at Fellowship Bible Church would never do anything like that. Listen, 
There were two that denied their Lord. One was Judas, one was Peter. Judas did it for money, couldn't stand the money, threw it on the ground, couldn't stand himself, went out and hung himself. The rope breaks, he falls down a cliff and his guts burst out on the rocks. Peter denies his Lord, looks in his eyes and he breaks down and he begins to weep. He doesn't know what to do with himself. I figure he couldn't sleep. He he finally, a couple of important moments will happen later. One is he said, I don't have this Jesus thing still figured out. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old job. I just don't get it. I think Peter partly might have been saying, I'm not even worthy to be a Jesus follower if it's all true. I'll just go be a fisherman. They're out on the water. They had seen their Lord in the upper room, trying to put it all together. And there's Jesus. Somebody's over there, got fish cooking in a pan or on a stick over a fire. The men couldn't catch fish. They go into the shore. They recognize it that it's our Lord. Without a rod, a reel, or a line, he had fish frying for breakfast. And that's when they have that most incredible moment of restoration. You think it's a mistake in John 21 where Jesus looks at Peter three times and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. One hung himself and his guts fell down in the ground, down the cliff. The other, he couldn't stay away from his Jesus. Why? Because he loved him. He loved Jesus. You can love somebody down in front and then wish him dead a few years later. If you really love him, you won't leave him. Peter really loved Jesus. He really loved him. Conclusion, application. If Peter can fall, so can we. If Peter can fail, so can we. Number two, we need, excuse me, we need to live daily in the fear of self-reliance and overconfidence. Do you agree with that? I think that every day we should be afraid of our own ability to trust our flesh. Every day we should worry about our boasting words. Every day we should crawl on our bellies before the Lord and by His grace He will sustain us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, he said, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You think you can't fall? You are a fool. Jude, at the end of his letter, remember he said, I started out to write to you a a letter about our great salvation in Christ, but instead I have to contend for the faith. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry. In Jude 24 it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to him be the glory and the honor. Prayer every day. Lord, keep me from falling today. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about making a fool out of your relationship with Christ by acting like you don't know him. By his grace, when the test comes, we'll prove our loyalty and our love by our actions Third point is without words, without action is not discipleship. Words without action is not discipleship. And number four, finally, the proof of one's love for Jesus is in their obedience. John 14, 21, he that has my words, my commands and keeps them, he it is that loves me and he that loves me will be loved by my father, loved by me. You love Jesus? Stop just talking about it. 
You've got to live it. You've got to live it. If Peter can fall, so could we. We need to live daily with the fear. With the fear of self-reliance and overconfidence. Count on His grace to keep us from falling. Words without action is not discipleship. And the proof of one's love for Jesus is their obedience to His word. May the God of all grace keep us all from falling. May Peter's testimony challenge us deeply. Let's pray. Father, we bow humbly before you. Thankful for Peter and what he means to us and how he became such a proclaimer of the truth. How his testimony at his death was that he refused to be crucified in the manner of his Lord and demanded that they turn the cross upside down according to tradition. We know he loved you. Thank you for your grace that brought him through. Thank you for your grace and restorative forgiveness, Lord, and for those of us who've been denying you, for those of us who've been living in such a way that it does not prove our love or our devotion. Would you please forgive us? Would you please, by your grace, strengthen us in our walk and keep us from falling again? Father, may our testimony for Jesus as a congregation and as individuals be lived out and not just talked about. Father, bring conviction as it is needed and help us to just offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice. Take our lives and just let them be totally, completely consecrated to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.